Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 157, uh, our 33rd session on the Council of Elrond, I believe. Um, I don't know what the over-under is on the total number of sessions we're likely to hit uh, at this point uh, on the Council of Elrond, but a fair few. 60? That seems fair. We're only about halfway through the text at this point after 33. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, a full year on the Council of Elrond seems about right. It really does. Um, anyway, what I wanted, I wanted to uh, start as I did last time. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Mad Violinist says 71. Right, yeah, that's... Um, that's uh, it's very, uh, very plausible. Well, I wanted to remind folks, we are in our fall fundraising campaign for Signum University. Uh, so I wanted to, to draw everybody's attention to that. Uh, you know, Signum University, of course, relies on the generous gifts of our supporters. Uh, and I don't spend a lot of time asking for money, uh, but I, you know, can't uh, forbear to mention it, uh, our need for it, um, especially now this year as we are, have officially begun the accreditation review process, and that is a costly process, uh, and so we are still uh, we still need. We have still have a bunch of funding on hand from the generous gifts that were given towards our credentialing fund uh, a couple years ago, um, and that will cover the majority of um, of our. Uh, uh, that'll cover the majority of our costs, but not, unfortunately, all of our costs. So uh, we still need to raise a little bit more. And, of course, we have our annual fund, like, you know, to keep the lights on and stuff and keep everything running. Um, so uh, we have, uh, we're about uh, about $20,000 or so uh, short of our annual, uh, our target. Our target is $75,000 for the year, uh, which will... Um, uh, you know, which will cover our annual, you know, what what we need from our annual fund plus our credentialing costs. Um, so I guess that we've we've raised, uh, you know, about uh, fifty five between fifty and fifty five thousand uh, so far, which is um, awesome. Uh, just you know, so grateful to everyone's generosity. Um, so if you haven't had a chance to give yet, certainly encourage you to do that. Go to signumuniversity.org/fund uh, in order to. Uh, see our whole fundraising page, or you can just go straight to signumuniversity.org slash donate uh, to get to our donation form. Uh, and uh, the other thing that I wanted to sort of share with folks sort of in lieu of our normal announcements, um, like I did last week, uh, you know, some, one of the things that I'm reflecting on uh, during this time are the ways in which Signum University uh, is positioned uh, in order to respond to the crisis in higher education in America right now. There are a lot of problems that higher education is facing, and as I look around, I can't help but notice that the majority of the problems that higher education is facing, Signum is not facing. Signum already has, either by, uh, by uh, chance or by uh, strategy, um, has already eliminated uh, the majority of these problems. And I, a lot of people don't realize this. A lot of people aren't really, uh, don't really get uh, who we are and what we've done. Even, uh, you know, those of you who attend classes regularly and know about Signum might not know all of the different ways in which, uh, you know, Signum is, uh, is, is different from the mainstream in these ways. So I've been, you know, in... For throughout this fundraising campaign, I'm going to start each of my classes talking for just a little bit 
about one of the problems. Uh, one of these th problems, some of them are real crises in higher education. Some of them uh, are sort of just underlying issues that confront higher education, that, you know, problems, serious problems uh, with higher education today. Um, and, uh, you know, some of these problems are obvious to everybody, right? You know, problems that the whole world is painfully aware of. Things like the student debt crisis, of course, which is what I talked about last week this time. Um, and there are some other problems that the, you know, universities themselves are very painfully aware of, such as uh, the, uh, the the challenges with, with doing remote learning well uh, during, you know, which they've, you know, all been facing during the, uh, the pandemic time. Um, I talked about that last week as well. But there are other problems that higher education faces, problems which, things that people didn't really think were broken, right? Though some of these have really emerged and have become more clear that there are problems here. Um, and especially the issues of the last six months surrounding the pandemic have really helped to emphasize that. Um, and it's one of those things that I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about enrollment agreements, student enrollment agreements at universities. Um, this is, on the one hand, a fairly simple thing. Most universities, right, you apply to a university, you get accepted. When you are accepted, you are expected to sign an agreement. You're expected to matriculate. You're expected to commit to that school. Um, and that seems like a simple enough kind of thing, uh, even, you know, sort of an assumption that a lot of people make. Of course, you're going to sign a commitment uh, to the school. Um, you know, you're going to commit to the program. Um, and these commitments usually involve committing to take a minimum number of courses, you know, like to enroll full time or whatever, uh, you know, for the time that you're there. Uh, there is usually a financial bond involved. That is, you're signing yourself up for tuition payments, you know, on a yearly basis. Uh, you know, whether you're so w w whatever kind of schedule you're supposed to be paying your tuition on, but you're, you're committing yourself. And you've and if you want to withdraw. If you want to back out, you've got to jump through hoops in order to be able to make that happen. That's the way that these things generally work in higher education these days. And again, this is not something that I think would have jumped out to a lot of people uh, as like a major issue, a major problem in higher education. Um, but I, th I think it is. And I think that that's become clear uh, recently. The issue here, of course, is that this practice, the practice of forcing students to sign enrollment agreements in order to attend your school, uh, clearly subordinates the good of the student to the good of the school, right? Um, it is in the it is in the interest of the of the of the school. It is very much against the interest of the students for them to commit themselves in the way that these enrollment agreements ask them to do. Now, some of these agreements have you know, very easy terms. They're not all like super draconian, but some of them are. I mean, some of them are, you know, there are schools that have enrollment ag agreements that are actually quite sleazy and hard to escape from. Um, but no matter what, whether it's a generous agreement or whether it's, uh, uh, whether it's a, a, a more sharp agreement, um, it's still not in a student's best interest uh, to enter this kind of binding commitment. It's really just in order to uh, uh, to sort of try to secure their own uh, finances that schools do it. Um, now, the conflict the, the the conflict of interest between students and universities again the fact that they're you know the goods of both do not at all align on this has become really really obvious in the context of the covid pandemic 
right? Of course, this past spring, lots of people saw this happening when students and families, of course, were obligated to follow through on the financial payments that they had agreed to make. They were legally obligated to do that, even though they were no longer getting what they had signed up for, right? You know, and, and of course, there are very many students who are now suing schools and trying to recoup some of that money. Um, uh, and again, the, you know, this that whole situation wouldn't have emerged uh, and certainly wouldn't have been in this if students had been, you know, free, uh, had been, uh, you know, had not already been obligated in those obligations being still called in. This, this past fall, uh, you know, the current semester right now, uh, there was an even uh, honestly darker situation that often emerged uh, when schools were delaying. Uh, there were many universities, and I found this fairly repellent, actually, many universities who deliberately delayed the announcements about what their campus plans were, whether they were going to have students back on campus at all or whether they were going to be completely remote again for the fall or some hybrid, um, you know, uh, 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 compromise. Um, they would delay those reactions until after the date, uh, the deadline for making the enrollment agreements. First, make the students commit themselves for the year and then make the announcement. And that's Again, not right. But again, the point is this really all of this stuff emphasizes the way in which really the, the whole enrollment agreement situation, this 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 practice of compelling students, you know, uh, having students attendance premised upon the idea of them signing legally and financially binding agreements to the university sets students and universities against each other. It puts them in an adversarial relationship, which I think is very detrimental to the whole educational endeavor. At Signum University, we believe that students should be free. Um, we have no enrollment, enrollment agreements whatsoever. We don't ask any student to make any kind of formal or informal long-term commitment, and certainly never do we collect tuition or demand tuition in advance. Um, when students are accepted to Signum University, what that means is you are then invited to register for classes. You are, you're given the green light. You can sign up for classes if you want to. Um, uh, and of course, we also give you an advisor to help you to, you know, sort that out, to, you know, to help to work with you to figure out how to do your classes and in what order. Um, but that's what acceptance means. You only ever pay for the courses that you sign up for when you sign up for them. Um, so again, we're not, you know, and which means you can determine the pace of your, uh, of your education. And if you want, you know, and or if you in a particular semester, something is happening in your life and you can't take classes, then well, guess what? Don't take classes then. You should be free to make your own decisions about this. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, because we want students to be able to fit their education into their lives according to their own judgment and not because, you know, we've put them over a barrel uh, and made them commit in advance to uh, to doing all this stuff. Again, we just think that uh, this is not... Uh, this this should not be a dynamic in, in education. So as I say, in, in a lot of ways, this seems like a smaller deal uh, than the student debt issue. But in some ways, it's actually similar, right? It, once again, there is this trend, and there has been for decades, this trend in higher education of putting the you know, the financial bottom line of the university ahead of the good of the student. And I don't think that that should be. I don't think that that need be. Uh, and 
in at Signum for the last nine years, we have shown you don't need that. Um, you can, in fact, establish a different relationship with students uh, that is much more generous, much more open, and leaves the university free to the, now be aligned with the student instead of in competition with them, instead of facing each other, you know, in court now, of course, as so many universities and students are. Um, so um, that's uh, uh, that's. Um, that's the thing that I, so that's the thing I wanted to talk about today. It's, it's my fourth problem uh, with higher education that I'm highlighting here. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, now evil Dr. Cannon, it is true. It's not universal. Not all universities do this, um, but many universities do this. And I have to say evil Dr. Cannon, um, it's become more uh, common recently. Um, so it's more common for those of us who are a little bit older to not have had that, but it's not unknown at all. Um, uh, yeah. And also Brandon, I wonder that too. Uh, Brandon's response was, uh, partly, I think you're lucky. Partly, I, I'll bet you signed one as part of your enrollment or class registration process without realizing it. Yeah. I think a lot of people do that again. It seems like a normal step, right? Um, I mean, just think of, think of the application process, right? The first step is you're given your acceptance and then there's a deadline, right? You've got to decide where you're going to go. Well, what does that mean? What does that decision to go somewhere mean? You signed something, didn't you? Right? Like you, 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 uh, you committed, you, told the school, I'm definitely coming, that there, that, that was an enrollment agreement and it has legal clauses to it. And it means you can't just walk away, you know, in the middle of the semester, you couldn't just walk away or like between semesters, you couldn't just be like, yeah, I think I'm just not going to sign up for classes and maybe I'll do that. You know, I'll put it off a year or something like that. You had to, you would have to withdraw from the program, right? Because you'd signed an agreement, right? We don't do that. At, at all. Um, we don't ever make students commit to us. We just, we invite them to take classes. We'd love them to take classes. We encourage them. We give them an advisor to help them take classes. Um, but they never, they never, they never commit. They never, um, uh, we, ne we never force them to do that. So anyway, it's, and it, it, and I love it. I love it because it enables us to remain wholly on the side of the students. We're not trying to be in competition. It's one to me. It's one of the fundamental premises of the institution, right? If we can always, if we can not put into place things which make us, which create any kind of an oppositional relationship between Signum and its students or between Signum and its employees, right? If we can be on the side of our students and of our employees, then we can create a better institution, right? That kind of seems like a no-brainer uh, to me. Um, and um, uh, anyway, anyway. Um, so, well, see, well, Michael, it's it's challenging. I mean, that's the rationale. The rationale of universities is, um, you know, an agreement is necessary sometimes to maintain the program. Well, is it? I'm not convinced that it is. I understand. I'm not saying I don't understand why schools do it. Um, but honestly, it's, um, uh, I am not convinced, uh, that it is absolutely necessary. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, it's, it's, um, you know, it, yeah, yeah. It's, it's and, and there are some circuits, and as I say, it's not that all in all agreements that are written up are like horrible, 
exploitative agreements, though some are, uh, and some students aren't even aware of uh, of that to some extent. Um, but um, but anyway, you know, it's uh, it's it's a it's part of a pattern. Is my primary argument. It's part of a pattern in how universities do business that I think they need to re-examine. And I think that this whole situation, you know, what's been unfolding over the last six months has really brought to the surface uh, some of those things which have really, these problems that have really been latent uh, in the system for quite a, quite a while. Um, anyway, um, uh, so... Anyway, I don't want to take all night talking about it, but I just wanted to raise this again. You know, I'm trying to to create some discussion. I want to I want to I want to not be silent about this stuff anymore. I've been I've been keeping this stuff to myself for a really long time, but it's time to be talking about this stuff more. So I really uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, Kurt Simus, I agree at the very least. If you do have an arrangement, you should at least have it witnessed seven times in red ink. Uh, that, I think, clearly is the only sensible way to proceed. All right. Uh, well, let us uh, uh, jump back into the text here. This is Radagast's big scene. We got right up to his uh, first line of dialogue, one of his only lines of dialogue. In fact, uh, you know, tonight I think we're going to get all of Radagast's words, uh, which is... Um, uh, which is kind of fun. Little context first. I um, my t- title for this class was the Order of Wizards because tonight, you know, this pa- this passage is where this really kind of comes to the fore. That is this question of, okay, who are wizards anyway, and what is the Order of Wizards? Um, you will remember. That of course this um, this came up in the Hobbit, right? But it came up kind of indirectly, or rather, not indirectly, but it came up um, uh, sort of after the fact, right? Um, it, it only came up in the context of Gandalf's explanation to Elrond at the very end, um, right in the last chapter. Um, explaining where he'd been, why he had to leave the dwarves behind and go away. Uh, and that was not certainly not part of Tolkien's core concept uh, of the Hobbit story when he wrote it. Um, uh, in fact, you know, in the earliest drafts, uh, he was just kind of hanging out with Bjorn. I mean, like, you know, it, it, the, the Bilbo was wanting to send back for help. Uh, and, um, you know, Gandalf was just kind of like, you know, having crumpets and hanging out with Bjorn. So like he didn't necessarily have a whole lot to do um, uh, in this. So the, the, the sub, the, there was no subplot, essentially. There was no subplot of exactly what Gandalf was up to. Um, he was... Tolkien wanted him to go away, and he wanted him to come back later, right? But he wanted to leave Bilbo and the dwarves. That is, Tolkien wanted to leave Bilbo and the dwarves alone for some time. So... It seems fairly clear, based on the manuscript evidence, that it was only later that he came up with an explanation for where Bilbo, or sorry, where Gandalf was, right? Where, um, uh, where, what, what he was spending his time doing, what was the thing that was so important for him to do that he had to leave Bilbo and the dwarves behind right on the edge of Mirkwood. Um, and as I say, it doesn't make it into the story at all until... 
the very end, uh, and there only it's overheard in conversation and summarized by the narrator in one short paragraph, which says that Gandalf met with the White Council of Wizards, so there are a bunch of other wizards that form a council, uh, and they kick the necromancer out of Mirkwood. Um, it is not clear. The necromancer seems to be a wizard, like, you know, like it's like a sort of an internal matter, right? There's a bunch of other wizards and there's apparently a bad egg, right? The necromancer, he seems to be a wizard who is up to unscrupulous and inappropriate things. Uh, so they gang together and they boot him out, right? Uh, of Mirkwood. I guess like so there's like some kind of what disciplinary action or something like that against the the necromancer it's it's not clear right exactly what happens but there is um uh there is the vague sense that there are lots of wizards right and this of course is in keeping with Gandalf's characterization throughout the hobbit right Gandalf is uh you know he's he's fairly famous in the parts where, you know, he's where, 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 I mean, like he's known around the Shire, right? Um, he's uh, apparently been heard of, um, um, you know, it seems to be, have a reputation among the dwarves. He's known to Elrond, right? So, you know, in the Northern world where they're journeying and everything, Gandalf is uh, a familiar face, but he's not unique, Right. I mean, he's a wizard and it seems to be in the Hobbit. It seems to be a profession. Right. Um, I mean, like you can be a wizard, you can be a plumber. I mean, it's a slight exaggeration, but it you know, he seems to be a guy um, who is a, who is a, sort of a professional wizard. Um, and there's there's a bunch of them. Right. They have a they have a they have a union, Sam. Exactly. Um, and um, uh, but um Exactly. Yeah, Matt, the Procedure and Ethics Committee of the Wizards Union called a meeting to discuss recent activity of the necromancer. That seems to be pretty much how it seemed to have gone down uh, in The Hobbit, as far as we can tell. Now, obviously, by the time we get to The Lord of the Rings, and certainly by the time we get to this passage, um, things are um, things are in a different place, right? Um, and Gandalf's position uh, is very much... Um, Gandalf's position is very much elevated uh, in the story. He's not still not unique, uh, but he is much more important, right? And yet, there are still these other wizards out there. And of course, for those of you who did the uh, Mythgard Academy discussion of the history of the Lord of the Rings books, the uh, Return of the Shadow and the Treason of Isengard uh, and the War of the Ring, uh, and, you know, plus, <clears throat> first bit of Sound Defeated... Um, for those of you uh, guys who did those discussions with me, you will remember that this idea of a one of the other wizards who went bad um, is not an idea that dies. Uh, none of Tolkien's ideas die quickly, right, or are abandoned swiftly. Um, so when he decided that the necromancer was actually Sauron, and so therefore not, clearly not just a wizard who had gone bad, uh, Tolkien took that idea, the idea of the wizard who had gone bad, and put it in his drawer, you know, that drawer that he keeps discarded ideas and characters and passages in, and he took it back, back out again when he got to uh, when he got to the Lord of the Rings. The, and it seems fairly clear uh, that that's what 
the Witch King was. The Witch King, who is called the Wizard King throughout the vast majority of the drafting. It was a very last-minute change to change the Wizard King to the Witch King. Um, uh, so the Wizard King was the was the head of the, the Nazgul, and he was definitely sort of Gandalf's opposite number. Um, he was seemed to be one of the wizards who had gone bad uh, in one way or another. Um, and of course, he was a ring wraith also. So, you know, Sauron was obviously involved in this process. Um, but uh, but yeah, so the idea of the wizard who had gone bad um, shifted from Sauron to uh, the Witch King. Now, the Witch King's story in the text is actually kind of made more vague than that in the end. Um, he's not really given a clear story, as the, like an origin story, that is. We don't, we're, we're never told the origin story of the Witch King exactly. Um, but... Um, uh, anyway, so the um, uh, this idea of there being a sort of I was about to say subculture. That's not quite the right word. Uh, well, the order, right? Like that there's a, a body of wizards around in the world, right? Um, that remains, right? That's still kind of floating around and it emerges again at last here. Now, we've had a reference to Saruman before, right? What of Saruman? Uh, what are his counsels, right? Uh, Galdor was asking that, and, and Gandalf is explicitly answering uh, that, um, that question here uh, in his narrative. Um, but even there, even when Galdor was asking about Saruman and Gandalf was remembering back to the words that Sauron said to the council and everything. He's already changed the idea of the council, right? The White Council now has elves on it. It's not just a wizard council anymore. It's not, it's no longer a professional, it's no longer like the National Professional Organization, you know, the Middle Earth Association of Wizards or whatever. Um, I guess that would be meow, wouldn't it? Um, I guess if they're cat lovers, that would work pretty well. But anyway, uh, it's not any longer that, right? The, the White Council now still exists. He hasn't jettisoned the idea of the White Council, but it now seems to be a gathering of the wise with a capital W, which clearly includes Elrond uh, and uh, would include Goadriel if she'd been invented yet when he was drafting this passage. Um, uh, and all that uh, kind of thing. I agree, JJ, you're right. Cat lovers are bad guys, and so therefore, uh, it, you know, it, it clearly wouldn't be that, right, in Tolkien's world. But um, <laughs> I'm joking to cat owners out there. It's just, JJ's right. Tolkien's clearly a dog guy. It's just the way it is, right? Um, but um, that's true. The Middle Earth Order of Wizards would be Meow, uh, Green Great Dragon. Uh, you're right. That's that actually works even better. Um, but um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so the White Council has been repurposed, right? Has been repurposed to merely a gathering of the wise. Saruman and Gandalf are clearly on it still. Uh, you know, so there are there are wizards present at the Council of the Wise, but it is no longer just you know the 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 White Council uh, or the Council of the Wise. It's no longer been. It's no longer just a gathering of wizards themselves. Um, when Radagast shows up, right? Um, uh, it is. It changes things now, right? Radagast sh so now getting a third wizard who shows up conveying a uh, message from one wizard to another wizard, right? From one member of the order to another member of the order. Now, once again, 
<clears throat> raises the concept of the, you know, sort of the, what is the, uh, you know, and it's always hard to use this phrase uh, in a Tolkien context, um, final evolution of, uh, the word final is the one that I always have a hard time with in a Tolkien context. What is the final evolution of this concept of the order of wizards? Um, so uh, with that context, let us look at what poor Radagast, whose uh, big appearance on stage, I've been pushing back and back here. Uh, let's see what he has to say. Gandalf, he cried, I was seeking you, but I am a stranger in these parts. All I knew was that you might be found in a wild region with the uncouth name of Shire. Your information was correct, I said, but do not put it that way if you meet any of the inhabitants. You are near the borders of the Shire now, and what do you want with me? It must be pressing. You were never a traveler, unless driven by great need. I have an urgent errand, he said. My news is evil. Now, before we get to his news, uh, I want to let's deal with the first two paragraphs first there. Um, what do we learn? What do we see about Gandalf and Radagast as characters and about their relationship with each other from their first exchange there? Um... Uh, yeah, Dragon Tarachne, I don't know why Shire or Susa, right, as would be the Westron word, why it sounds uncouth to Radagast. Um, I don't know why. Um, I would have to think it's because Ling... I mean, I mean he's saying... The name sounds uncouth, so it's presumably a linguistic comment on Radagast's part, right? That the name, um, uh, the name of the, uh, the the name of the place just does obviously does not sound like the kinds of names that he's used to, right? Um, it sounds strange to him, and so therefore uncouth. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Emily's wondering if maybe it's because it's a word and not a name at all um, that makes it sound weird. Um, you know, one of Tolkien's generic place names, right? Like, you know, the Shire, the the water, uh, you know, the... Uh, so many, almost all the names in The Hobbit, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, so... No, Mike, my sense, the word uncouth is interesting. Um, and the word, the, the, the reason I say it's interesting, Mike, Tolkien himself used this word often. Well, often, I don't know about often, but the usage that jumps out in my mind, Tolkien would often, would use the word uncouth when talking about the kind of response that he was expecting from readers of his book to his names. Like, he tried to prevent the names that he gave to people, especially important and prominent people, from looking uncouth to his readers. Um, so, I don't think, Mike, that it just means, it means unsophisticated, specifically. It just means strange and foreign and awkward, right? 
This is one of the reasons why he changed Galadriel's name, which was originally had a DH in it. Galadriel uh, was the was the way that he was spelling her name before he dropped the H. And when he he talked about why he dropped the H, and he exp- he said it was because the DH vowel combination looks uncouth to English readers. Um, so again, I don't think this is about like it's 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 not I think a snobbery word that he's using there. Um, he's not saying that, uh, but he is saying it's it's strange and outlandish, right? Kind of like what Gaffer Gamgee would probably say about the Brandy Bucks, right? Um, Angris, yes, we do still have Mithros, right? Be- first of all, it's in the Silmarillion. He never got that in front of English readers. <laughs> Let's not forget that, right? And secondly, um, it, you know, it's not that he never uses that. He, it's not that he like eliminates that consonantal combination uh, from the languages entirely. It was from Galadriel's character. He did not want that to be... He did not want English readers to be stumbling over the DH consonantal combination in the name of a major character of the book. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, the Galathrim are still there, right? Um, you know, the, the, the DH combination is still used in several places around Galadriel, but not in her name. And again, he, he was there... Uh, you know, sort of um, compromising uh, with... Because uh, he was sensitive to this. He was sensitive to... He was not, um, you know, sort of... He did not have the attitude of like, well, you know, I know better than you do. My languages are good and make sense. So if you don't like it too bad, um, he was he was sensitive to this. Um, and so he was... Um, uh, uh, he was thinking about that. But Angrist, like with Mithros... Yeah. Um, uh, doesn't matter. <laughs> First of all, because it's the Silmarillion. Uh, uh, but secondly, again, who knows? Like, had he actually... Uh, remember, he never got that close, really, to publishing the Silmarillion. The closest he got was right when he was supposed to be writing The Lord of the Rings instead, or when he turned to writing The Lord of the Like, right before writing The Lord of the Rings was the closest he felt he ever got to publishing the Silmarillion. Um, but in any case, the Silmarillion is a very different kind of very different kind of thing um but um uh anyway uh so yeah yeah um Yes, exactly. Thank you. Uh, JJ provided the quote that I was remembering. Before I discovered that many readers like you would be interested in language details, I thought people would feel DH uncouth and so wrote a D for DH in names. Exactly. That's just the line I was remembering, JJ. Um, Yes. Uh, And I love that. Before I discovered that many readers like you would be interested in language details, right? He, He had kind of not dared to hope that people would actually be interested in his languages for themselves. Um... But, um, uh, anyway, so, um, uh, so uncouth, so as far as the implications, when he says the uncouth name of Shire, he's, it's, it's, it it clearly means unfamiliar, right? He's never heard of it, but it's not just like, that's a place I've never heard of. It's an, it's a weird name, right? And so I, I do wonder if it's, um, uh, back to, so, wait, I've forgotten who it was who was talking about his names. Um, uh, yeah, Emily. Um, 
the rather, because it is a rather hobbitish tendency, right? Just to call things um, what they are, right? Like in Hobbit fashion, they end up naming the new row, new row, right? At the end. Um, as well as, yes, exactly. Uh, you know, the water, the town of Bywater called that because it's by the water, right? Um, you know, uh, Hobbiton called that because it's a town that hobbits live in. You know, I mean, uh, so much, um, so much of Hobbit landscape is like that. And again, with New Row at the end, we're told that that's like Hobbit fashion, right? That's that's the way they tend to name things. Well, that's not normal. Like that's not really, really. Um, that's not really common. Exactly, Kurtzim is Mr. Underhill. Yeah, a lot of their names uh, are sort of similar. Even the botanical names of the Brelanders are of a different kind, right? You know, to call somebody Mr. Fernie or Mr. Appledore or whatever, that's still more abstract than Mr. Underhill, right? Who lives under the hill. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, so... Um, I wonder if that's what it is that makes it sound uncouth to him, exactly. But I think the primary emphasis here is that he's... What a stranger he is, right? Radagast has never heard of the Shire. He's not even... Gandalf gently corrects him, right, first. You're near the borders of the Shire now, right? And it's like, no, you're supposed to use the definite article there, Radagast. Right. Radagast doesn't even know how to say it properly. He thinks it's a name when it isn't exactly a name. It's more like a title. Right. The Shire is what it's called. Um, so one of the things that I think is most important about the use about his wild region with the uncouth name of Shire comment is exactly how alien this is to Radagast. And this tells us something both about the Shire and about Radagast. Right. It's a, it's a reminder, first and foremost, that although we as readers could be forgiven for thinking that the Shire is like, you know, the central spot in all of Middle-earth, right? If we say, especially if we start with The Hobbit, uh, not only because that's where, you know, that's sort of the frame of the entire Hobbit, um, but it's also even uh, the way that Bilbo looks back at his home in the Shire and thinks about and fantasizes about his home in the Shire. There is a Shire words orientation in a sense of that entire story, right? Um, uh, and even when he uh, it returns home and is changed and everything, uh, there's still... Um, there's still, you know, the, the the way in which he embraces anew his home and his new context is still a really, really important thing. Um, uh, so anyway, it's... Um, uh, as I say, we could be forgiven for thinking that the Shire is like, you know, obviously a really, really famous land, right? But it's not. So we're being reminded of the fact that a lot of people who live in uh, Middle Earth, right, who live in this world, have n no idea at all. Know literally nothing. Radagast knows absolutely nothing, right? All he's... All he knows is the one word, Shire, right? Um, he knows nothing about it. He has no idea who lives there. He has no idea what kind of country it's like. He doesn't have any more than the vaguest idea of where, of the direction that it is. He's, he's, he's close to it, 
right? But he doesn't know that he's close to it. Um, you know, Gandalf has to tell him that. Uh, so, um, and again, so he knows nothing about hobbits. Uh, he certainly doesn't know anything about the culture of the Shire, or he would never call it a wild region, right? Nobody who's been to the Shire or knows anything about the Shire and, or its inhabitants would call it a wild region. Exactly. He assumes it's a wild region because it's way out here in the boonies of Eriador, right? Um, and like, what's out here? Nothing is out here. The ruins of old Arnor and, um, you know, there are a few famous spots like the Barrow Downs are pretty famous, right? People will still remember stories about the Barrow Downs, probably, you know, back from the times of the Arnorian Civil Wars and stuff. And they'll probably remember about Weathertop and the fall of Weathertop and everything. Um, but, um, but I mean, I get, what's, what's here? There's nothing out here. So what would you expect to find? If there's a country out here, it's got to be some sort of savage, you know, place in which some sort of, I don't know what, crude nomadic people dwell in or something. I don't know. Um, You know, uh, but it's certainly not. um, uh, He has he has no idea. Right. Um, uh, Anyway, so. Radagast. Um, so this tells us, this is a reminder, right, that folks don't know where the Shire is. But at the same time, this also tells us about Radagast, something which Gandalf himself makes explicit when he says, you were never a traveler. We might assume all we know is Gandalf, right? And we've heard a couple things about Saruman at this point, but Gandalf is the only wizard we've ever met. And one of the things which is clearly, uh prominent about Gandalf is that he's itinerant, right? He's, tra- he always, he's popping up all over the place and traveling around and organizing adventures and going on cross-country treks, right? He's uh, highly mobile, right? And so we might assume that Radagast is too. Maybe Radagast travels around in a different part of the country, but, you know, uh, he probably has his own beat, right? If, uh, if up here in the north part of Eriador, uh, you know, and points we- and points east is, is Gandalf's beat, then maybe Radagast is somewhere else. And so we're told, nope, don't make that assumption, right? He doesn't. He d- Gandalf travels all over the place. Radagast does not. He was never a traveler, right? He has been staying in one place for a very long time. Now, remember that Gandalf, when Gandalf introduced Radagast to the council, uh, you know, brought up Radagast um, uh, in the previous slide, he remember he said that he used to live at Rosgobel, or you know, lived you know until recently at Rosgobel, um, not because apparently he Gandalf assumes that Radagast is has moved on, you know, apparently he's not the moving on type, right? Um, Gandalf's. Uh, qualification about whether or not Radagast is still living at Ross Goble, uh, his uncertainty about whether or not Radagast is still living at Ross Goble, seems to be um, due a, a testimony to how long it's been since Gandalf has seen him. He can't say he lives at Ross Goble because, you know, I've not seen him in what? Who knows? More than a century, maybe? I don't know. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, um, and Carita, that's a really good question. Should we react by assuming that Gandalf or Radagast is the weirdo, 
is a really, really good question. Is one of them normal for wizards and the other one weird? Well, Karita, the only data we have, right? We only ha now have heard even briefly of three wizards and two to one, they are two to one sedentary, right? Um, Saruman has a spot, a tower that he lives in that he can be found in. Radagast had a place. Ross Goble, we don't know anything about it, apart from the fact that it's uh, near the edges of Mirkwood. So we don't know anything about, you know, like, is it a tower? Well, who knows? Like, you know, anything about its architecture or whatever. But, um, but both Saruman and Radagast seem to have places in which they are normally to be found. So if somebody's weird, it's Gandalf. But of course, Karita... Gandalf is normal for us, right? Um, that's what we're sort of used to. So I think, Karita, that one of the, the conclusions, tentative conclusions we can draw, one of the ways in which I think we're being nudged by this, or by the early exchange here, is to think about that Gandalf is kind of weird on purpose, right? That Gandalf is um, is unusual as a wizard. The other wizards aren't quite like Gandalf. Um uh, I don't think we're in any danger of thinking Gandalf deviant in a bad way, right? Um, but it is being emphasized that he is, I think, uh, different. Different. Now, uh, Simon, you are right that um, uh, we do know that Saruman traveled to Minas Tirith to read the scroll in Gondor, right? Um, that he had studied in Minas Tirith long, according to Gandalf's testimony. Um, so he seems to be, Saruman seems to be more of a traveler than Radagast. Anyway, he is not uh, locked in place. Um, but um, uh, he is, um, uh, he is, but he still has a, a spot, right? Gandalf has no tower. Uh, and there's not been any hint that Gandalf has a home at all yet. Um, and I think that that is sort of gently supposed to be weird, right? Um, and yeah, Evil Dr. Ken and I agree, this is going to be emphasized later on when Gandalf's name, Gandalf's going to be given the name, um, you know, Grey Pilgrim or Grey Wanderer, um, which does make it sound like that's, a peculiarity of his, right? Which is why he's named that. Now he's not been uh, really given that name yet, but um, but yeah, we will we will get around to that. Um, uh, okay. Um, oh yeah, no, he is called Grey Pilgrim as an endearment. It's definitely a it's definitely a, a friendly name, um, even a sort of respectful name, I think. Uh, but um, I, I, it's just the point is people wouldn't say that, right? Um, uh, you know, it's like, if wandering around, if being a wanderer was an intrinsic part of being a wizard, you wouldn't name him that, right? You know, any more than you're going to be like, you know, a plumber comes to your house and you're going to be like, hey, I'm going to nickname you the plumber who fixes pipes, right? Like, you wouldn't do that. What it means to be a plumber, right? So again, if if wandering were an intrinsic part of being a wizard, you wouldn't give him the name the Gray Wanderer, because that would be assumed in the wizard part. So that that's I think the important point there. Um, um, okay. Um, 
you know, Ambrosius Aurelianus, a, uh, a presentation comparing and contrasting Radagast and Tom Bombadil would be very interesting, I think. Um, anyway, okay. So that's an interesting thing that I think that we can learn. Um, notice uh, Radagast's attitude towards Gandalf. I saw some people at the very beginning when I first asked the question um, were saying, um, hang on, Dragon Tarachne, I don't want to bring up Radagast's other name because he doesn't have it yet. There's no evidence that that exists right now. Um, uh, and it's hard. I'd certainly want to separate. I want to... It is not fair um, to... It is perfectly fair to take the material that Tolkien retcons back into the Lord of the Rings in after years and to think about what is the effect on the earlier material of him imposing this later stuff on it, right? It's all part of the story. I'm not saying that stuff is not legit or, you know, not real or, or whatever. Totally okay to think about the stuff that gets brought in in Unfinished Tales, but I don't want to bring that into this discussion because it, it doesn't exist. He's not called Iwindil. He's not going to be called Iwindil for many years, right? He's called Radagast, and that's the only name that's given for him here. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, no, I say you're answering Angra's question, but still, no, this is important because when talking about the wizard stuff, I'm sure, you know, when I was giving my little wizard introduction earlier on, I'm sure many of you were thinking of the essay on the Astari, Right. Um, and, you know, some of the things that Tolkien says about the wizards and stuff there. And obviously that's perfectly relevant to this question. Right. Uh, has all of the relevance brought in by the fact that Tolkien himself was thinking about, you know, he was trying to answer those questions in that essay. Right. So clearly um, it's interesting to see the kinds of answers that Tolkien later came uh, to it. But it's not... We can't, we have to, I think it's important for us to resist appealing to material that he only wrote later on as an explanation of what he wrote here. Sometimes it can shed light on it uh, after the fact, but usually I think that's not quite the same. Um, uh, <laughs> anyway... Yeah, from you, I'm not scolding anybody, uh, <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, uh, I, just, I just I just wanted to I just wanted to make sure that because again I know that like the essay on the Astari is kind of looming over this discussion in some ways, especially I don't know about you, but I have been thinking as we prepare to talk about Radagast here, I've been uh, reflecting on the rather hard things that Tolkien said, other harsh things that Tolkien says about Radagast uh, in the essay on the Astari, which, but I'm not going there, right? I'm, I, I want to, I want to not, uh, I want to not go there uh, because again, like this is, that's him reflecting on these things after the fact. And I want to see what the text here shows us. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> nobody's in trouble, guys. <laughs> anyway, okay. So I saw earlier on people talking about like the tone in which they're addressing each other. Um, they seem very comfortable 
with each other. Gandalf's tone when he, he he's not very formal, right? Like he doesn't greet him with any formality, like, um, you know, hail Radagast as you come. Like, you know, he doesn't. Uh, we don't see any of that kind of very. There's no stiffness here. Um, in fact, Gandalf is engaging in. Um, um, Gandalf is engaging in hobbitry here, right? Um, his tone is quite playful. Your information was correct, but do not put it that way if you meet any of the inhabitants. Um, he's teasing him, right? Like, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Um, there, I can be found in the Shire, so in as much as that was your information, your information was correct, right? But uh, then he kind of teases him, very, but quite gently. It's not his fault that he's never heard of the Shire before, right? Um, so, you know, he's not, he doesn't actually mock him or anything, um, but he kind of gives him a hard time, right? Um, and points to irony, which Radagast himself won't even get, right? Don't put it that way if you meet any of the inhabitants. That's almost like a joke for uh, his listeners, like Gandalf's listeners, like Bilbo and Frodo's benefit, right? Um, because because Radagast uh, certainly would not understand why that sentence was funny, because he doesn't know anything at all about the inhabitants, um, which was the point. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, JJ, I agree. Sometimes you tell a joke for yourself, not for your audience. Uh, that certainly does happen. Um, um, now, uh, yeah, so Mike says, um, old friends who haven't spent much time together lately, but spent a great deal of time together in the past, <laughs> like maybe on a long boat ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've, they've been out of touch for a long time. I saw somebody earlier on say, um, um, you know, they, they, they sound like two people who have known each other before, have been out of touch for a long time and are kind of okay with that, right? Don't, uh, you know, are, are, are comfortable uh, with both seeing each other again and also with having been out of touch all along. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so... Uh, you were never a traveler unless driven by great need. Um after teasing him a little bit and making a joke, I, which I agree is primarily for his own benefit, he tells him you're near the borders of the Shire now. Also gently correcting, you know, his diction, explaining it's not a name. It's a, you know, you have to use the definite article in front of it, right? Um, and what do you want with me? He, he does get right down to business, right? Which is polite because, as he says, like, it must be pressing. Like, I, I know this has to be important because you were never a traveler. So only great need would have brought you seeking me. So um, uh, let me not waste your time. Tell me what you what do you want with me now? Um, uh, coming back to um, the question... El Guapo that you were just pointing out, Gandalf could have asked, who told you that? Where did you hear that I could be found in the Shire? Right? Um, that itself, he doesn't ask that, right? Um, but I've got to think that Gandalf is thinking that. First of all, I think that um, 
Gandalf has to already be suspecting that Saruman sent him. Um, there's a there's a limited array of options as to why Radagast could be here, seeking Gandalf. Um, and in a wild region with the uncouth name of Shire. Um, there's a limited number of reasons that Radagast could be here. Um, uh, he could be coming to tell him about something that was just transpiring in Mirkwood, right? If there's been like, you know, um, Mirkwood was just sacked by orcs or something. I mean, like I get some kind of calamity on the other side of the mountains that Gandalf might not have heard about yet, but that, uh, um, that Gandalf would need to be informed of or something. Um, that's the only reason I can think of for Radagast coming on his own. Because again, he does apparently based on Gandalf's reaction, it's not a thing that Radagast does. Right. So, some great need must have sent him. So if it's not a great need of his own that he's come to seek Gandalf, which which would make some sense because Radagast is also, if he's not, if he doesn't quite share the same beat that Gandalf does, he's at least adjacent, right? Um, I mean, he's he's in southern Mirkwood and that's not so far off of Gandalf's beaten path. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, so... Um, if Radagast needs help, who's he going to go to for help, right? Well, actually, there's several candidates there, right? Mightn't he go to Galadriel? Mightn't he go to Thranduil? Um, what is it that would lead him to go seeking for Gandalf's help in particular? That would certainly, I would think, be puzzling, right? Puzzling to Gandalf and make him really wonder what Radagast is, is up to. Um... Let's go on and look at his words. I have an urgent errand, he said. My news is evil. Then he looked about him, as if the hedges might have ears. Nazgul, he whispered. The nine are abroad again. They have crossed the river secretly and are moving westward. They have taken the guise of riders in black. I knew then what I had dreaded without knowing it. The enemy must have some great need or purpose, said Radagast, but what it is that makes him look to these distant and desolate parts, I cannot guess. What do you mean? said I. I have been told that wherever they go, the riders ask for news of a land called Shire. The Shire, I said, but my heart sank. For even the wise might fear to withstand the Nine when they are gathered together under their fell chieftain. A great king and sorcerer he was of old, and now he wields a deadly fear. Who told you, and who sent you? I asked. Saruman the White, answered Radagast, and he told me to say that if you feel the need, he will help, but you must seek his aid at once, or it will be too late. Kurtzimus, that is a wonderful question. Um, I wonder what other guises the Nazgul take. Um, yes, they have crossed the river secretly. They have taken the guise of riders in black. Um, have they been seen in other guises? Uh, I mean, it stands to reason, right? Um, since we're told that they don't really have 
shape. Yeah, they could walk unclad. Yeah, they could walk unclad. Um, they, um, uh, that they are choosing to show themselves openly is, I think, one of the interesting things here, right? Um, uh, <laughs> riders in red, riders in yellow. Uh, yeah, yeah, I suppose. Um, uh, <laughs> Matt says he can't see the Witch King saying we are but poor lost circus performers. Um, right. No. Um, I think the point is that they're riding openly, right? Um, they have taken the form of the guise of riders in black. That is, they've put on the cloaks to give shape to their nothingness, right? They've put on the cloaks and the boots uh, and they're riding their horses in order to enable themselves to interact with other people, right? If they didn't have to interact with other people, they wouldn't necessarily need the gear, the cloaks and such. Um, but they are using the cloaks and such. Um, yes, Kurtzimus, they would certainly list the cloaks as among their assets. No question. <laughs> no question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, that seems not a given. Again, are there other guises that they might have appeared in? Could they appear in other shapes entirely? Um, I have no reason to think so, necessarily, but I suppose. I mean, so like, first of all, the uh, the dark captain, you know, the the captain of fear at the head of the armies driving the armies of Gondor back from Osgiliath. That's a different guise, right? Um, you know, to be this, you know, the the both the the general and the, you know, this um, uh, black force of fear in the army. That's it's, he's not totally different, right? But um, uh, but again, it's certainly riding forth as the general of the army is a different guise uh, than. Uh, they're not quite poor lost circus performers, Matt, but they're closer to it than when, uh, you know, you ride out of Minas Morgul at the head of your army. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, good. Oh, you guys are already up to uh, Saruman's message. Hang on, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um I have an urgent errand, he says, right? So he immediately says, I'm not here on my own behalf, right? The first thing he communicates to him is, I was sent. I'm running an errand, but it's an urgent errand, just as Gandalf has said, unless driven by great need. And Radagast endorses that. Yep, mm -hmm, great need. You're exactly right, Gandalf, right? Um, I'm on an errand, right? I have an urgent errand. He's a he's bringing news and the news that he's bringing is evil and the news is that the nine are abroad again um, they have crossed the river secretly and are moving westward the nine are abroad again the nine have not been abroad for a long long time um, what does this mean what does this tell us that the Nine are abroad. What are they up to? Where are they going? Um, he has not said anything about that. The mere fact that the Nine... Now you, you might think, 
that he would sort of lead with the nine are abroad and they're looking for like you. They're looking for the country where you've been hanging out, right? Um, uh, he doesn't go there immediately. The mere fact that the nine are abroad, like the word Nazgul is his news, right? My news is evil. Nazgul, right? Um, the mere presence of the Nazgul, the mere presence of the nine um, out in the world, having crossed the river and now coming in, coming into the rest of the world. Um, that is... Um, uh, that is definitely um, uh, the w- that's okay. Th- like that is his urgent news in a sense, right? Um, without even considering what it is exactly that they're up to. And yeah, I agree. Fourth Dauntless, the nine are abroad again is chillingly ambiguous. Um, uh, even not knowing who these guys are, a first-time reader should feel the menace. Yeah, his his. Uh, his whispering. I love Fourth Thoughtless in that way. The choice of the the word Nazgul, right? Nazgul, uh, as Tolkien knew very well, is a very ominous and evil sounding word. Um, you don't have to know anything to know that something called Nazgul is probably bad news, right? And if somebody is saying my news is evil, and then he's looking around in a paranoid way and then whispering Nazgul. Oh man, that cannot be good, right? And then the nine are abroad again. Nine who? Nine what? Um, yeah, yeah. Kurtzimus exactly. Kurtzimus says it's like Aslan is on the move, except in a bad way. Yes, yes, um, uh, yes. Very good. Um, exactly. Um, Gandalf's response, I knew then what I had dreaded without knowing it. Remember, there was some fear on the people that he met, right? He met some refugees and there was some fear on them that they would not speak of and he didn't know what it was. Um, uh, Did they meet the Nazgul? I don't know if they would have to have met the Nazgul. All they would have had to do was hear stories that they were around, to have talked to other people who might have seen them or something, or even just heard rumors like... There are rumors that there are these nine incredibly creepy riders, you know, or even just like shadows that have been seen and and the kind of terror that they would inspire in anyone who saw them even from a distance Um, or even was near where they were or maybe even had been. Right. I mean, it's it's there are lots of ways in which the presence of the Nazgul in the region would be would communicate itself and spread itself spread fear among the people and Gandalf seems to be picking up on that right um, so he says I, I, I knew it right my heart dreaded something I could tell that something was wrong remember he's referring to the premonition that led him to leave the Shire in the first place right he felt like something was amiss and so he came down he had some kind of presentiment that something was up and now he realizes what it was then Radagast comments right he sort of editorializes the enemy must have some great need or purpose but what it is that makes him look to these distant and desolate parts I cannot guess he has no idea 
Um, on the one hand, it is obvious that Sauron is up to something. He has sent the nine together on a mission, right? And he has sent them out to the back of beyond. Uh, these distant and desolate parts, that's what Eriador in general is to everybody else who doesn't live there, right? Distant and desolate parts. Nobody, who lives here? Nobody lives here, right? You've got dwarves and you've got Círdan, who are all out, you know, closer to the coast. You've got dwarves in the Blue Mountains and you've got Círdan uh, and the elves uh, out there at the Havens. You've got Rivendell, right? Um, you've got a dwarf road. You've got Bree, but come on, Bree is a human, is a pretty backward little human village at an old ancient crossroads, you know, which doesn't even really exist anymore because one of the roads isn't even, I mean, it's a road from nowhere to nowhere now, essentially. Um, so um, it's not, I don't even, I don't think that, that uh, once, if he goes and if he were to go and stay in the Prancing Pony, I don't think that Radagast would change his opinion about these parts being desolate, right? Okay, so there's a village. Okay, well, still pretty desolate as far as I'm concerned, right? So again, you've got the Havens, you've got the Dwarves, you've got Rivendell, and, and what? What else? In all of Eriador, what else is there? Nothing. There are some people who live in Dunland, right? Uh, but apart from that, what else is there? Nothing, right? There's the Dunedain, but they don't you know, they're not a big thing, right? They're certainly not civilization. So, um, the enemy must have some part. He would not just send all nine of the Nazgul together off into this area for no reason at all, right? And yet, um, he freely admits he cannot guess at all what possible purpose he could have. Gandalf, of course, um, is, um, uh, Gandalf is immediately alarmed. What do you mean? Said I. Like, what do you mean that he is looking to these distant and desolate parts? Um, remember that Gandalf was worried about spies um, from the beginning. I mean, from the beginning of the book, right? From chapter two, he was worried about spies. Um, that's why he infenestrated Sam in the first place, right? Because there seemed to be some kind of genuine concern that there might be a spy. And as he admitted later on, um, just in this chapter, um, spies had been seen around the Shire. Um, so that seems to be a, uh, a realistic concern on Gandalf's part. Um, so Gandalf has been concerned about that all along, um, and now he says, Radagast, I have been told that wherever they go, the riders ask for news of a land called Shire. Um, the lack of the definite article. You see whose fault that is? You see whose fault it is, right? Why is it that Radagast misstates the name of the Shire? Exactly. It's Gollum's fault. It's Gollum's fault, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because everything 
Sauron, literally everything Sauron knows about the Shire and the current location of the ring he learned from Gollum. Um, and so they are saying what they, um, they're saying all that they know, the word Shire, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So Radagast is only reporting what the riders are reported to be saying. I have been told that wherever they go, the riders ask for news of a land called Shire. Who told him that? Now, it might sound, at first, like Gandalf was talking to refugees on whom lay a fear of which they would not speak. Maybe Radagast has also spoken to refugees and heard rumors, right? Um, he'd heard from people who had run into the, to the Nazgul uh, and been asked um, or talked to somebody else who told them about these incredibly creepy uh, guys in black cloaks who asked about a land called Shire. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, but I don't think so, right? Gandalf corrects him again, right? The Shire, I said, but my heart sank. Um, his correction is meant to be sort of lighthearted, right? Uh, to establish a fairly lighthearted, to maintain a kind of lighthearted tone. Um, despite the fact that he's still speaking fairly lightly and lightly correcting, um, um, lightly correcting Radagast's uh, diction here, um, you know, he's a, but my heart sank, right? Despite the fact that my words were still fairly light, uh, my heart, uh, my heart sank. Um, he knows what this means. This means Sauron already knows. Uh, remember that um, Gandalf has already concluded because he knows that Gollum was captured by Sauron, and he has interrogated Gollum, and so he believes that he knows what Gollum knows and trusts that Gollum told Sauron everything, right? So therefore, Gandalf knows what Sauron knows. Um, so this is not a, sh you know, that the Nazgul are searching for the Shire is not news to Gandalf. He told Frodo that was going to be happening, right? Um, not that it was going to necessarily be the Nazgul, but that Sauron's spies would be searching for the Shire. Um, and, you know, that Sauron himself would think that the long, unnoticed name of Baggins had become important. Remember, that stuff is all there in Chapter 2. Um, the reason his heart is sinking is that the Nazgul are a lot closer than he was afraid that they were. Um, yes, Fourth Dauntless, I agree. I also read this as as his correction being sort of reflexive uh, as his mind is, is racing ahead. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah. Um, the the timing, look, I, there's, I don't want to get into this too much, but there's no question that the Nazgul 
will have had to book it from the the bridges of Anduin uh, to get up here by this time. And remember, we were talking about this before. There is every reason to believe. There is every reason to believe that the Nazgul could take months, right? Like a year, maybe, searching around for the Shire, even. I mean, it's pretty hard to find. Nobody knows about it. Nobody talks about it. And it's way the heck out in the, these distant and desolate parts of Eriador that nobody even goes to anyway. Um, and there's no hint from anything. Like, there's nothing from uh, like that it's on the other side of the mountains Gollum would know from Bilbo, right? And from what he heard in Dale. Um, but, um, uh, but yes, he, there's no reason to think that Sauron, so from Gandalf's perspective, when Gandalf has that conversation with Frodo, he does not pack Frodo up right away, right? You know, his message to Frodo in chapter two in the shadows of the past is not Sauron knows about you. He's hunting for you and they could be here any minute. Let's get out. That's not his message, right? He doesn't think there's any hurry. And he's perfectly willing to let Frodo delay months. And his rationale there seems to me totally appropriate. Right? If Bilbo, Bilbo's vanishment, right? Bilbo's very sudden and remarkable departure from the Shire was more than a nine days or a 99 days wonder, right? There were stories told far and wide. Right. Remember, in Bree, they know the story well about Bilbo's farewell party and his vanishing. Right. Uh, his uh, his sudden departure. Um, that's that's an old hat story in Bree. Um, that story is going to circulate. Um, and so, therefore, the more widely the story circulates, especially involving the name Baggins. Right. Um that's going to lay a really big trail. So Gandalf is right to say it's best, it, it would be worth a little delay, as he says to Frodo, um, if you could leave without its becoming generally known. Um, okay, so um, uh, there's, so the Nazgul are coming. The Nazgul are on their way, um, and based on what Radagast seems to be telling him here, right? Um, they are much closer than Gandalf was afraid of, right? Now, this doesn't mean they're right behind Radagast, right? This doesn't mean that they're right on the doorstop. Uh, you know, Flamifer, as you say, they're not going to get to the Shire for three months yet. Now, that's still, that's still pretty good time, given their lack of information. That's still pretty good time. Um, they could be, I mean, goodness, they could have wandered off down in like, you know, the Enidwife and Dunland and up, uh, you know, uh, I, there's a lot of ground in Eriador. And if all you have to go on is to look for a land called Shire, um, and a person named Baggins, um, uh, it is, uh, it is not much to go on and it's going to take you a long, long time, uh, to be able to find that. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it would be kind of like me setting out on foot, being told the name of a town in, you know, I don't know what, the Yukon or something like that, and setting out on horseback to try to, to try to find it, knowing nothing other than that, you know, it's somewhere to the north of me, right? Um, but anyway, um, so Gandalf was originally in no hurry. He's going to be in more of a hurry now, but again, he's, he, Radagast, is not saying they're right behind us. His news is not that Sauron is hunting for Baggins and Shire. Gandalf knew that was going to be happening. The news is Nazgul, the Nine, are abroad again. He sent the Ringwraiths, all of them, to hunt, uh, uh, to hunt for the Shire. And that is a little bit more alarming than just the concern about spies that may or may not be lurking outside the windows of Bag End, perhaps. Um, Now, what do we get when we get his heart sinking? More on this. For even the wise might fear to withstand the Nine when they are gathered together under their fell chieftain. A great king and sorcerer he was of old, was of old, and now he wields a deadly fear. Um, so we're setting up the Witch King in particular. He's a big deal. And when all of the Nine are gathered together with their chieftain among them, this is a problem. Now the problem is not just discovery. It's not just trying to keep... It's not just to, to, to keep spies from finding out where Frodo is and, and reporting back. How can he be protected? Right? How can they stop the Nazgul? This is... Um, um, yeah, Kurtzimus is asking, why is it only now he wields a deadly fear? Kurtzimus, I have to imagine when it says... A great king and sorcerer he was of old. That means prior to his wraithification. He was always a sorcerer. He was powerful, he had political power, and he had sorcerous power before he got wraithified. And now he wields a deadly fear. As a wraith, he wields a deadly fear. Um, so, and that's... There's your backstory. <laughs> That's the Witch King's backstory right there. A great king and sorcerer he was of old. That's pretty much what we know. Um, but now he wields a deadly fear. Um, who told you and who sent you? I asked. Saruman the White. Now, yeah, Kurtzman says, wasn't he wraithed during the Northern Wars? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, no, like when he was ruling Angmar, yeah, he was he was totally post wraith at that point. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. But that's not what Gandalf is talking about. Um, uh, I don't think it is. I think he's talking about his. He's trying. He's setting up who the Witch King is. Um, he's not referring to Angmar here. I don't think he's referring to Angmar. Um, I think he's talking about he is talking about the independent power that the fell chieftain of the, the fell chieftain was a big deal on a, off his own bat right without Sauron's help their fell chieftain was a big deal 
since he's gotten Sauron's help, uh, he is now a very serious deal. Deal, witness the Angmar situation, right? Um, yeah, so that's what I. Th- so I get. He says of old. Now, of old could easily refer to the time of Arnor. Um, and the time of the the civil wars and the downfall of Fornost and all that kind of thing. Um, so it is possible that I mean that is to say that that phrase could easily refer back to that time. But I don't think that he now wields more deadly. Like the fear that he wields now is more deadly than the fear that he wielded when he was the Witch King of Angmar. Um, I don't think there's any reason to think there's much of a difference, uh, really, between the Fell Chieftain then and now. Um, Maybe there is, and I'm not thinking of it. Um, I mean, of course, Sauron is back and has declared himself. That was different. Um, that was not so. Um, but again, it, Sauron had already begun to take shape again by the time Arnor was taken down by the Witch King. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, Brandon, that's excellent. Sam was asking about why does he have to brief Radagast on the Witch King? Yeah, he's not. That's not in the... All he said to um, all he said to Radagast was the Shire, who told you and who sent you, right? Um, he's explaining his thoughts and his feelings. Why is it that his heart is sinking? His heart is sinking because he's afraid of the Witch King. And especially the Witch King with the rest, you know, with the other eight along with him. Right, all nine of them gathered together under the Witch King. Gandalf is like, I can't, I can't protect Frodo from that. Right, I can't, there's nothing I can do. Even the wise might fear to withstand the nine when they are gathered together under their fell chieftain. So, the first question was, that is back in chapter two, you know, back in the shadows of the past. Sauron knows about. The Shire, and he knows about, or he knows about Shire, and he knows about Baggins. How worried should we be? Answer: Not that worried, right? I mean, you know, it's a cause of concern, uh, but um, it's going to take him a long time to get here. And you know, as long as we're careful about spies and not letting the story spread abroad, we we might be okay, right? Um, so he doesn't worry that they're going to be discovered very soon, and he doesn't worry, uh, and he, but he, and he seems to believe, you know, they're proceeding in an orderly fashion, right? Let's get Frodo out of the Shire and he'll move to, he'll move to Buckland. And then from there, he'll, he'll take off on his journey and go to Rivendell. Um, but, um, um, but he can protect him. Surely Gandalf can protect, if all, if he sticks with Frodo, Frodo will have a chance, right? But now, wait a second. You're telling me all nine ringwraiths under their fell captain, who's a big deal, right? The Witch King of Angmar himself, plus all eight of the rest of the Nazgul, are all coming on this trip? I can't protect Frodo from that. What are we supposed to do? Um... Who told you and who sent you? Now, he has to have a suspicion. 
and Radagast confirms it. Saruman the White. And he told me to say that if you feel the need, he will help. But you must seek his aid at once, or it will be too late. Um, this is an exceptionally cunning message by Saruman. It is extremely, as several of you are pointing out, it is extremely manipulative, right? Um, the things that I would emphasize there, um, which I saw struck several of you as well, um, notice how this seems almost designed to respond directly to Gandalf's anxiety, right? He was already anxious that Frodo might be discovered by spies. But now, now he's thinking, what if the Nazgul find him? And again, I can't, I, I can't protect him from all nine on my own. And so the message is, Saruman will help. Saruman will help. He has just been wrestling with the fact that he needs help. He can't do it on his own. Saruman will help. Okay, that sounds hopeful. That sounds handy, right? But notice the other things there. If you feel the need, he will help, right? Unless, that is, Gandalf, you think you're above help. Unless you think you can just take all nine of the ringwraiths on your own, right? Unless you're too arrogant to admit that you need help. Uh, unless that's true, Saruman will help. Um, that if you feel the need is so effectively manipulative. I only call it manipulative uh, in retrospect, really, because we know what's going to happen, right, when Gandalf gives into it. Um, it doesn't have to sound come off like that. Um, but knowing what we know, you can see. You can see that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, Sam, I agree. Uh, Sam says, how much of this implication is Radagast aware of? None. None. If you feel the need, he will help. That doesn't have to sound pointed. doesn't have to sound snide. If you feel the need, he will help. It doesn't have to sound like that, right? If you feel the need, he will help. If you think you need his help, he will help. Now notice, remember, Radagast has no idea what Gandalf is doing. What would Gandalf need help with? What do the... what He, Radagast, hasn't the faintest idea what makes the enemy look to these distant and desolate parts. He cannot guess what Sauron is looking for and why he's coming here to the back end of Eriador, right? Um, and not knowing that, he also has no idea, having not seen Gandalf and knowing nothing about this uncouth place called Shire, he has no idea what Gandalf is up to, right? Um, is this, do you live there, Gandalf? Is this where you, did you make a little tower there or something? I don't know. He, why, how's he going to know, right? Um, is there something you're working on for some reason? Does that have anything to do with what Sauron is doing? Maybe it does, but there's no necessary reason to assume that, right? Um, and so Saruman, to him, he could easily say, um, uh, 
he could he could he could definitely say uh, that um, uh, it's um, just very kindly meant, right? Um, if you feel the need, like I don't know if you need help or not. Maybe you don't need help. I mean. Maybe Gandalf was just like, you know, on some kind of wizard's retreat or something out here. And so all that Gandalf needs to know, I mean, it's Gandalf needs to know that the Nazgul are right, you want to bump into them in a back alley, right? But uh, maybe he just needs to, maybe he just needs to flee. Radagast has no idea. He has no idea what the Nazgul are doing. He has no idea what Gandalf is doing. He's just supposed to tell him, by the way, the Nazgul are around. They're looking for Shire. Um... Uh, if you need help, Saruman says he can help. Um, yeah, and Simon, I agree. If you feel the need, feels a little bit like a test to see if Gandalf is involved and where his allegiances lie. Um, if you feel the need, he will help. And I love that he will help. Not, you know, he's willing to help or, you know, he might help or... You know, anything. It just, he will help. Like, the help is there for the asking, right? All you've got to do, Gandalf, is just speak the word, and Saruman is there for you in your corner. And that sounds really good, right? Really good. Now, Nancy, you're right. The number of things that are so important that Sauron would send all nine uh, has got to be a small number of things. But but what what, what could it be? Remember, the ring is off the table. It's out of Middle Earth anyway, right? That's a fact. Everybody knows that, right? Everyone knows that. That is a that is a thing that is true, and so therefore, he's puzzled. That's why he's puzzled. He can probably think of many ends that Sauron would have in mind that he might want to accomplish, but what on earth could it be? Because yeah, there would have to be a tiny number of, of things that would lead Sauron to send his all of his ringwraiths out. Look, but, but what, 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 what could possibly be that important to Sauron? Um, again, it's not on the table, right? Uh, the, the 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 ring of power is gone. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Um, so. There's a very good reason for them not to uh, not to think of that as a potential reason. Um, him seeking one of the Elven rings, Rowan. Sure, that's much more likely. Um, those at least are still around, right? Um, and people don't know where they are, so any number of things could have happened. I mean, if it's going to be Ring of Power related, that's a better theory. Uh, certainly, than um, theorizing for some re- against all known facts that you know the One Ring is still around. Um, like Weabot says, could the Nine be seeking the heir of Elendil? Well, yeah. Now that depends. You know, does Radagast know about that? I don't know that Radagast knows about the existence of the heir of Elendil. Um, the heir of Elendil is a pretty well kept secret too, um, but. Um, uh, but sure, there are some who might possibly be thinking that. Um, it's possible. Um, 
but you must seek his aid at once or it will be too late. Um, now, again, thinking from Saruman's point of view, that is... Um, from Saruman's point of view, that's also clearly manipulative, right? Um, come at once or it will be too late. Um, you can't just come wandering down here at on your own time, right? Um, I'm going to put some urgency in it so that he knows, you know, to, to, to try to get him to come right away. Um, but, um, does it make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And I agree, Kurtzimus. It definitely does sound like a message from a superior, though a kindly superior. If you feel the need, he will help. He's he's gonna come and help bail you out, right? He's here for you. Like your supervisor is here to support you in your work, whatever it is your work is, right? Your supervisor is here to support you, um, but you. No, but you're right, Brandon. It does have the air of uh, of a, of a of a superior. Uh, Brandon says none of this. Expect me when you see me. Nonsense. Uh, you arrive when I tell you to. Yes, exactly. Um, I ag- agreed, Mike. It's only in hindsight that this sounds creepy or manipulative. It does not sound creepy or manipulative at all. That's why it's so effectively manipulative, right? Um, there's all kinds of positive reasons why he would say seek his aid at once, or it will be too late. Right. Brainstorm with me. What are some reasons why it would make sense to Gandalf to think he should hightail it down to Orthanc? Maybe it has to do with geography, right? Maybe they haven't gone through the Gap of Rohan yet. And if Gandalf come, if Gandalf and Saruman join forces down at Orthanc, they can prevent the Nazgul from coming through the Gap of Rohan, and therefore, at the very least, buy themselves a lot of time, right? Um, that's one possibility I can think of, but but come soon, or it'll be too late. Like, once they're through the Gap of Rohan, he can't, you know, Saruman doesn't have the power to prevent them himself, right? But maybe there's something that the two of them can do together uh, that would enable them uh, to, you know, close the Gap of Rohan uh, to the ringwraiths. Um, that certainly seems uh, one pl- plausible explanation. Another one, or it will be too late, like Gandalf is um, concerned. He was concerned about spies before. He is much more concerned now to know that it's the ringwraiths themselves that are hunting for the Shire. They might find it, right? I mean, he wasn't worried about timing before. Um, but if there is help, that Saruman can give. Remember, and, and remember, this is premised, this hits Gandalf right when he is just reflecting, I can't protect Frodo myself, right? If he hasn't formed the phrase, I need help in his mind yet, he's, um, you know, explicitly, he's still definitely thinking in that direction, right? I need, I can't, I can't stand up to the Witch King and all of the, and all of the Nazgul by myself. And now here's Saruman offering to help. Maybe there's something. Who knows? Who knows what Saruman has 
found. Remember, Saruman... This is Saruman's area of research as well, right? Saruman has been studying the Rings of Power. You know, the Rings of Power, like the, the source of the deadly fear wielded by the Nazgul, right? Um, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you were only dealing with a great king and sorcerer and not the one you wielded? Maybe there's some kind of anti... Maybe he's figured out something about the Nine Rings and can kind of counteract them in some ways. Who knows? I'm sure that was exactly the kind of research that Saruman was doing. I'm sure that's what all the council thought that he was doing. I'm sure that was in general, it was very genuinely what he started off by doing, right? Um, so it's perfectly plausible that there could be some, what, protection, weapon, technique, some way there's... There's been a secret that Saruman has discovered that will enable him, Gandalf, to resist the Nine, perhaps. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, as Mike says, Gandalf's plan might extend no further than, than to get the expert involved and defer to his guidance. Yeah, I mean, again, this is, this is what Saruman does. He's the world expert in the Rings of Power, and that's what you need when the Nazgul are abroad. What other weapon is there, right? What else can you do against the Nazgul? And here's Saruman saying, there's a way out of this, right? I can help. But you have to come at once, or it'll be too late. And again, there's plenty of reasons to, th you know, th there's lots of reasons for haste now, right? Um, this is why I have always, it's always been one of my least favorite moments in the Peter Jackson films when uh, Gandalf believes that the Nazgul might be literally days away from finding Frodo in the Shire, and he's like, okay, they're right on your tail and could be here any minute. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to leave you behind and I'm going to go to Isengard to seek help from Saruman, even though I have no reason to think that he has any help to offer. Um, it's just as likely that I'll get down there and he'll say, man, I don't know. I got nothing for you, Gandalf, right? But I'm going to take just on the offhand chance that there might be something he can do to help. I'm going to do that. And that's totally worth leaving you utterly unprotected, um, wandering on your own with the Nazgul, like, right here at hand. That whole situation in the film just made me laugh out loud when I first saw it. I'm like, that makes no sense at all. Um, but um, this, this makes much more sense. And this is a really, really good message. Um, very well-crafted message. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Angrist, good. Yeah. Angrist is laying aside Saruman's knowledge. There's also the fact that there are warriors in Rohan uh, who might be able to help stop the Nazgul. Who in Bree would be able to repel the Nazgul? Not Bob and Nob? Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, I, I agree. I agree. Um, um, I agree that um, it makes sense. Again, the, to, to me, that the number one likeliest explanation of seek my aid at once or it will be too late is, like, first of all, it suggests I have help to give, 
right? There is a definite concrete reason for coming. But secondly, help me hold the line at the Gap of Rohan seems to me the absolute most likely explanation for um, why he should hurry. Um, maybe there's an opportunity. Maybe they can turn them back. Because think of what would happen if they turned them back. If Gandalf's getting to Isengard in time were to make it possible to turn back the riders from the Gap of Rohan, um, if it were possible to prevent that, so necessitating them going around and crossing the mountains somewhere else instead, he could buy Frodo months of extra time, right? Um, I mean, it's this is. That's a big... I mean, because he's thinking about Frodo. I can't protect him on my own. Maybe I can protect him with the help of Saruman. Maybe we can buy him an extra... So I'm going to send him a letter. Get out right now. Right? Leave by the end of July. Get to Rivendell. If he leaves by the end of July and he gets to Rivendell by, you know, like August, you know, or September at the latest, um, then... Especially if we turn them back at the Gap of Rohan, there is no way, no way that the Nazgul can get even into the same uh, area, right? The same chunk of the map as Frodo. So it would be worth the risk, right? Definitely worth the risk to do that if that could be achieved. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good. Um, okay. Now, uh, Evil Dr. Cannon, I agree with you. Radagast seems to show very little curiosity. Let's, uh, the last thing we'll do here, let's think about this from Radagast's point of view. Radagast shows he does not ask Gandalf, what's it all about, anyway? Um, he has to have noticed that Gandalf is hanging out in the country that the Nazgul are looking for. So whatever is the reason, and it's got to be a good one, though he has no idea. Um, uh, this there, There's obviously no coincidence here, right? So Gandalf is clearly involved in something in the Shire. There is some reason... That brings Gandalf and Sauron both directing their attention to whatever this uncouth Shire place is, right? Um, what is it? What are they looking for? Do you know what they're looking for, Gandalf? Do you know, like, what are you doing in the Shire? Um, I totally hear you, Matt, that I would think that these are questions Radagast might have, might have asked. Um, uh... Now, Emily says, as a fellow introvert, I understand Radagast's lack of interest completely. <laughs> Plenty of reason to think that uh, uh, Radagast is an introvert. Sure, sure. Um, Kurtzimus does say that uh, Radagast doesn't want to meddle in the affairs of wizards. It could be a kind of professional uh, curiosity. JJ, I, that's what I was thinking, too, that Gandalf is abridging the story and leaving out those questions. Um, he doesn't it seems to me very likely 
that the speeches that Radagast is given in this recounting by Gandalf is not necessarily all the whole conversation that went down there. Um, that seems to me by far the most likely explanation. I bet Radagast did ask, but I could easily believe that he wouldn't pry. If he said, what is it that leads them to look for the Shire and you to hang out in the Shire? Um, Gandalf might well have said, you know, yeah, there's a reason, but I can't, I can't disclose more about it here. I think that Radagast would have respected that. Um, uh, so, you know, I'm sure to some extent that, but I don't, I, I don't think we have to imagine that Radagast just wasn't interested at all. Um, uh, yeah, Valori, that is an interesting point that Radagast does seem to be trying to avoid giving Gandalf anything like a command uh, or request. He's just delivering a message, right? And even the message itself is gentle. If you feel the need, he will help. But in order to get this help, which he's freely offering, if you want it, you have to come right away or the, ho the help won't be available. And he can't specify what it is because, again, this seems like a normal thing, right? A fairly normal thing for um, uh, for all the people involved, right? That is professional courtesy among wizards not to meddle in each other's affairs, right? Radagast doesn't seem to have asked Saruman what help he could give or why it is Gandalf has to come down right away, right? Um, uh yeah, yeah. Well, see, uh, Evil Dr. Cannon, that's exactly the point. Um, we don't know what the job of wizards is, exactly. Um, we don't know. We know Saruman's job. Saruman's job is researching ring lore, right? He is providing very relevant scholarly expertise to the Council of the Wise, right? And it makes sense for him to be the head of the order because the one who knows most about the enemy should, but like the fact that he is the head of the council does suggest that, uh, well, the council of the wise are set against, um, are set against, uh, Sauron. Radagast isn't on the council of the wise. As far as we can see, there's no evidence that he is, um, yeah, there's no evidence that he is. Um, yeah, so... Um, exactly. Well, we'll get to that, Flamifer. The question of how Radagast heard all this from Saruman. Um, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, so... All we can see is there seems to be some kind of professional courtesy here, right? Saruman did not explain what the help was that he was offering. And Radagast didn't, you know, he did not make his conveying this errand contingent upon knowing that. Um, he doesn't make his delivery of the message to Gandalf contingent upon Gandalf's explaining what he was up to and what's going on, right? Um, you know, that's, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, there does seem to be, 
what do you call it, uh, professional courtesy or, uh, or, or un- uninquisitiveness, if that's just kind of a pattern there. But it certainly seems to be. Radagast doesn't absolutely need to know. Now, I do still agree with Mike that um, there's plenty of reason to think that there was more conversation here. But nevertheless, even if there were more conversation, I, I can't imagine Gandalf told him the truth about the Ring of Power. Um, I think he would have kept it. I think he would have hidden that. Um, and therefore, that it's very likely that Radagast would have um, uh, respected that and gone away not knowing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Mike says, could I imagine Gandalf being so uninterested if the positions were reversed? No. But two things. One, that doesn't necessarily mean that I see if the positions were reversed. Do you think that Gandalf would put the fear of fire on Radagast? If he did, I mean, would he strap Radagast down and threaten him with fire if he didn't tell him? No. I think if the positions were reversed, would do I think Gandalf would be curious? Yes. Do I think he'd be speculating? Yes. Do I think if Radagast told him, no, I, I can't, I can't reveal, it would be unwise to reveal that just now. Gandalf would wheedle, beg, and threaten until he did? No, I don't think he would. I think he would respect that. I think he would speculate. I think he might pursue it in other ways, maybe. Um, But that's one thing, is that I don't think, just because I do think Gandalf would be interested, does not mean I think that Gandalf would uh, not respect Radagast's boundaries in the same way that Radagast is obviously respecting the boundaries of both Gandalf and of Saruman. The other thing that I think about this is that um, we don't know what Radagast's job is. What's Radagast's job? Um, Is he... um, Yeah, as Emily says, Gandalf has made a, um, a career out of meddling. Yes, he has. Going about the country at a great rate and minding everybody's business whether it belongs to him or not, right? That's like on Gandalf's business cards, right? Radagast um, first of all doesn't go around the country at a great rate, certainly, right? Uh, that's not his job. What is his job? He stays at Roscobel. What does he do? What is his purpose? What is his point? We have no idea. We have not yet been given the first piece of evidence. The fact that he was never a traveler is literally the only thing that we're told that gives us any vague hint about Radagast's life and career. Um, We don't know why Radagast, what Radagast's purpose in life is, his job as a wizard. Gandalf and Saruman are both... They're both resisting Sauron. Saruman through his ring lore, right? Becoming an expert. He is an expert on the academic subject of the evil of Sauron and resisting it, right? That's what he studies. And so as the expert on that subject, he was made the head of the White Council. Gandalf is a professional meddler. He goes about and he tries to, you know, he, he messes with things, right? Like Erebor, what business of that, of, of his was that, right? 
Um, why does he go about bringing hobbits on adventures? Why does he go about, uh, you know, helping lost dwarf kings to return to their mountains and dispose of dragons? Um, why does he or arrange adventures like this? We don't know, but this seems to be his remit, right? This is what he does. Is Radagast supposed to do that? We have no reason to think it. We have no reason to think that he does um, have that same remit, have that same job. Um, so we've not even been told about the birds and beasts yet. We don't even know that about Radagast yet. All we know is that he lived, or at least used to live, on the borders of Mirkwood and was never a traveler, right? So minding other people's business and being involved. So again, like Radagast, him leaving this to the experts, you know, uh, leaving this to, to the... So, and, and notice, it makes sense if you think about it this way. Gandalf and Saruman are on the White Council. Radagast isn't. There's no reason to think that Radagast is on the Council of the Wise. But so it would make sense if Gandalf and Saruman both are directly involved in opposing Sauron, this is relevant to them. Maybe it's not relevant to, other than indirectly, right? I mean, presumably it's going to be a drag for everybody, right? If uh, once Sauron you know, conquers the world. So Radagast is probably, in general terms, anti-Sauron conquering the world. But that doesn't mean it's his area of study, right? Of focus. Um, the question of um, Kurtzum is, could he monitor Dol Guldur? Sure. But what reason do we have to think that he does? Um, again, like, why should he have a job of that kind, even? Um, and I think if there's any evidence, yeah, no, sure. I mean, he's near Dol Guldur, but what difference does that make? Again, why should he be monitoring it? Why should he have that kind of a job? Like, why should we... I mean, I agree, if you start off with the assumption he is a wizard and one of the good guys... He is one of the, you know, resources of the free people against Sauron. What would he be doing in Mirkwood? Then, yeah, sure, monitoring Dol Guldur makes a lot of sense, but why should we assume that? Why should we assume that that's a wizard's job? Maybe wizards are just um, academics. You know, maybe he's he's been spending lots of time, you know, studying, you know, the variations in like, uh, you know, uh, nutrient enrichment of the soil of Mirkwood, you know, as part of a longitudinal study of you know, plant life cycles. I mean, he could be doing that. There could be a, for a, an interesting, uh, you know, it's quite possible he could be doing those things. Something like that, right? Not something that has to do with Sauron at all. Um, we don't know enough to know. We have no idea how many wizards there are. No idea. I mean, I know there are five, but that's not come up yet pop quiz. How many times is that mentioned? The number of wizards in the Lord of the Rings? How many times is that mentioned? Once. Once. Only in Gandalf's or in Saruman's speech to Gandalf um, at Isengard. You know, the, when he mentions the rods of the five wizards is the only time that that comes up. So at this point, we have no reason to think that this, we're talking about three of the five, we're talking about 
you know, that this scene is involving 60% of the Wizards of Middle-earth. There could be dozens. And in The Hobbit, it sounds like there are dozens, even hundreds, right? So yeah, there could be all of these sort of eccentric uh, specialists. Um, well, Mike, I agree. You, you think there would be a purpose if you sent wizards across the sea, but who says that wizards came across the sea? Who said that? Nobody said that. Again, it's going to be said, but it hasn't been said yet, right? Um, not even... It won't be said at all in The Lord of the Rings until Treebeard wonders whether or not the wizards came. And he, Treebeard, is speculating that they might have come from Numenor. That the wizards might be Numenorian holdovers. Right? You see what I mean? Um, so we don't know. Um, we don't know... And I'm not even sure, when Tolkien wrote this scene, I'm not sure Tolkien knows that the wizards came from across the sea. Um, uh, but anyway, so so yeah, so we have no idea. We have no idea, but Radagast seems to be... Right, we have no idea. Um, uh, yeah, Fourth Dauntless, the, Gandalf's, the thing about Gandalf's name in the West when the... Uh, uh, his, about his name in the West is uh, that's from Faramir indirectly. So that is going to be told to us as an indirect quotation from a character who hasn't been invented yet at the time that this scene is written. So we're still, again, a, and again, it's, it's interesting to see. It's interesting to see how this idea is developing in Tolkien's mind. But, um, uh, but Radagast's job? Yeah. No idea what Radagast's job is. So is he uninquisitive? Sure. But again, what this isn't his job, right? Um, I mean, hey, I think he deserves to be praised and thanked for taking time off of whatever it is he does to run this message for his superior, right? Uh, Saruman clearly called in a favor. Well, you know, gave an order. I agree that it does sound like this definitely comes from a superior, right? Um, Radagast is being, you know, he's being diligent to the chain of command. He knows it's a big deal, right? He's creeped out about the Nazgul, such that he's even looking around at the hedges, right? He's creeped out about the Nazgul, so he clearly, like, he's driven by great need. Not his own need, maybe, right? But he, he, he understands. He knows enough to know that the Nazgul crossing the river secretly and moving westward is news, big news, evil news, Big evil news, right? Uh, he knows that. And so he's like, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, oh, and Gandalf needs to know this? Okay, great. And you can help him? All right, fine. I'll bring the message. And then he brings the message, and then he leaves again, right? As we'll see next time. Um, good. Yes, Brandon, good summary. So Brandon says... Um, yeah, Mike says it sounds like a researcher dragged into taking time away from research to teach an undergraduate course. Yeah, kind of. His department chair came in and said, you got to do this. Okay, right. So Brandon summarizes. We know, one, there are wizards. Yes, plural. Some of them are on a council. Yes. Saruman is the head of the council. Yes. 
Uh, no, we do know Saruman's area of expertise. And I, the reason I'm, I'm talking about Radagast being involved in research or, you know, like one possibility that the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the wizard's focus is sort of academic in some sense, we have reasons to think this. Um, both Saruman and Gandalf speak, uh, like, both of them have academic specialties, right? Um, the, uh, uh, um, Saruman specializes in the lore of the rings. Um, Gandalf has already joked about being the only one among the wise to go in for Hobbit lore, an obscure b branch of knowledge, but full of surprises, he says. Just like many academics I have known who have a particularly obscure field of study uh, and might laugh at themselves when admitting that very few other people go in for their particular highly obscure, very focused uh, and to most other people strange and puzzling um, areas of academic interest. Right. Um, so uh, and yes, Bricktails, we've seen Gandalf do archival research. Uh, and we've seen that when he did archival research, the only other person who had done archival research was one of the other wizards, right? So uh, there is good reason to think that um, uh, that the wizards are, in some sense, academics, that they are lore masters, that they study and learn things, right? What is Radagast's field of study? We don't know, right? But it doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be Sauron. And certainly there is no reason necessarily to assume that Radagast's job, as it were, would be to fight against Sauron in any way. Um, again, he could just be on a nice little quiet research grant in the forest down there. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway... Um, yeah, so Gandalf would be the weird one, going around meddling in things, right? Participating in stuff, interacting with people all over the place. Um, not best practice, necessarily, right? You know, I mean, is Gandalf like an anthropologist who goes out and instead of just studying these other cultures, goes in and tries to, like, fix them, help them, right? Uh, change their cultures, you know, some people would call that meddling. Um, anyway, okay. But now I've gone way too long. See, I spent way too long on this slide, but that's okay. This is Radagast's moment in the sun. We don't want to take it away from him because he will never get another one. All right. Um, <laughs> Mudmore says, that ring belongs in a museum. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Um, yeah, good. Okay, all right. I am um, going to let you guys go. We are super late. I'm supposed to be like ending the field trip now. I feel guilty. Um, so let's uh, let's let's get to that. So we're, we're going to the field trip now. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. See you guys next week for more Radagast. We'll do two weeks of Radagast. It's so exciting. Um, but um, uh, awesome. Thanks, everybody. Uh, feel free to join us over on twitch.tv slash for our field trip. Good night to the people on Twitter and uh, to those of you who can't stick around. And I'll see you guys next week.
Good evening, everybody. Good evening, Lori. Double the rat gas, double the fun. Yeah. Man, you know, so my settings got all messed with again. Oh no. It seems to have just like reset my settings for some reason. Oh, and now it's being weird. Hang on. See, I'm gonna start following up people over here. Yeah. Uh, Renzelus, I'm pretty sure you can't do the instance at level 22, though. So yeah, I'm... this is... It's a non-scaling instance, right? Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's non-scaling, but I also think there's a couple of requirements before getting to these instances. Okay. 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 Alright. So we, we can just head from there. We're going to try to look around Uragarth a little more today. Yep. There we go. Nice. It's like going to Uragarth from the comfort of our own home. Is the fortress of Ulgar. It's like remote Bird questing. Countless <laughs> orcs, goblins, and other curs. Can you see me? I don't see you. Is your mic on? I can't hear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I heard somebody mention it's kind of like a seance. Right. Well, you know, it's, yeah, like you can go questing in Oregarth, but, you know, you don't have Professor, to put on nice pants. If you are here, give me some sort of sign. <laughs> Here, let me see. Yeah, Hang on a second. Okay. People are saying your sound is low. Let me turn you up a little bit here. Oh, must it? Okay, yep. It's probably... I'm up full blast. Yeah, probably my fault here. Also, my voice is still a little... fuzzy. There we go. Is that better? Better, Nancy? That's I probably. believe so. Okay. All right. All right. So let's see. We we went. There wasn't much over the left-hand bridge, right? Yeah, that one was a dead end. Right. Boy, look at these goblins are begging for mercy, but no. Meet me, be. Okay, now I wanted to get down there and see the stonework on those buildings. Oh yes. This is where we found those artful drums. Yes, yes, the drums. Nicest drum heads ever. Oh, hang on, I forgot to uh, get a pet to help with this problem. <laughs> My pest control eagle. Um, okay, right, we got up here. And past here a little bit. Hang on, I'm gonna kill some creeps. Oh, seriously, that was just rude. <laughs> what of them yelled, what fun? What fun throwing throwing fire around? Yeah, probably. We have explosives, kaboom! Well, i got to be careful. I forget what a wimp Narnian is. I mean, he might be uh, 45 yeah, elves levels are over. so flammable. Why are elves so flammable? Well, it's not, it's just that, you know, he was, uh, he's, 
never completed a quest in his life, so. Oh, yeah. He's got no gear. I think he's still wearing the uh, gear you get in the uh, in the intro area. Oh, oh my. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I've not even bothered to put on the armor that came with the, uh, yeah. the Valar that I got. I forget what it is. Gift of the Valar? Song of the Valar? There's oh, so many that, of them. Sorry? Like... No worries, I got you, Pam. Okay. All right, cool. All right. Okay. So, all right, this is where we were, right, with the crude bass drum? Right. Okay. And then yep, we were yep. looking for ways down because really we can see some of the... Right, and we can see some of the old stone here, and but some of what looks like some of the new metalwork, right? Like yes. this. Quite a lot of it too, and different things for the like backing up these columns and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let's head. Should we head this way? It's the best There's way to get there. Where all the monsters are, so there's probably more to see. Right. Exactly. Oh look, there's another one of those not quite Cairo things. The the eight. Yeah. The, like the wheel, like the wagon wheel motif. You just call them dwarf wheels at this point or something. Right, right. Though it isn't exactly the same as the... No, it, yeah, it's not quite Durin's wheel, is it? Right, yeah. It's not quite the same as that wheel, but, but it's like it. And where we've seen it has been places where it's been sort of attached to the old architecture, like this one is here. You've got the old black and white stonework there. Mm -hmm. and it's again, different stone, though. And again here, this is all old stuff, not like what we saw from the distance there. Yeah, I'm noticing the bridges are different than the black and white building. The bridges... Yes, yeah, the bridges look newer. The bridges look newer. Uh, so the bridges and the dwarf wheel and these weird knifey buttresses are the same age. Yes. Because I see identical stuff. Okay, but now this Whoa! is... Whoa! Yeah, that's the dragon. Okay. Oh, oh, look, there's a dragon. Yeah, big old thing. This is this is the dragon that was flying around? Yeah. Okay. He's just stopping by to say hello. Well, this looks like his nest. There's bunches of eggs. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess we're not going to see much architecture here. Well, there's this, which is newer stone. So we're out of the yeah. range of the of the older stone now. So this bridge is new. Uh -huh. A lot of that stuff over there, like most of the fundamental architecture, there might be some newer stuff that was added onto it, especially the bridges. Uh -huh. But most of the newer stuff over there, most of the, you know, the, the, the core of that area was old Angmar. Then yep. you've got the bridge, which looks newer, like most of the bridges are, and then you've got this newer stuff over here. Um, mm, yeah. Look how shiny the metal is. Yeah. And that tower, too, over there. So this was built during the hiatus or towards the end of the hiatus? Mm-hmm. It's got to be old enough, though, because... Um, you know, we see it being mostly or at least partly ruinous. Well, sort of chipped off. I mean, it's not, um... Well, no, I guess in some places it's pretty well run 
Yeah. I suppose any wear and tear would be due to dragon interference. Well, but there is drake. always that. I mean, there drakes. is... These are drakes. Um, These are not proper dragons. We've seen proper dragons. Okay. Oh! Oh, I think I just like to do I'm trying to look at the towers. Um, okay. Yeah, it's not clear why these towers are here. Like, why anybody built these towers over here. What is, um, what oh. is Asht Shapol? Can we get in there? I don't know. Let's see. Let's see. Is this a tomb? Yeah. Ooh. Mood letting. It's not a tomb. It's a cave. It's just a cave with a cave. door. Okay, so this Pretty looks like cave. just like a sort of bolt hole that orcs have made. Everything in here is very temporary. Um... I'm gonna keep targeting this bird. Yeah. Wolf totems. Bad drum heads. The cool banner. Yeah. The cool banner. Sheets of leather. Yeah, this just looks like a squatting place, really. There's no evidence of... This is a network of caves. Yep. That's actually less developed than Goblin Town. Yeah, yeah, it is. There's no real reason to think that any of these guys have been here for more than... I mean, the most permanent Judging structure we've... Bones. Right. Well, but those can be imported, you know. Um... I ain't leaving without my skull pile. Oh, and that's a cliff. Oh, yes, quite. Is it a cliff we go down, or...? <laughs> did someone run ahead? Or someone... I think somebody did run ahead and go down the okay. cliff. Okay. Uh, should we go ahead? Um... How will we get out? Yeah, but Bolongspawn didn't see it coming, yeah. Yeah. That is an instance. We just leave the instance. Uh. I didn't see a turn. Is there a turn off? I don't know. Could be. Well, let's. I wanted to go down anyway, so let's go ahead and go down. Yep. When's it st when does anything ever stop you from falling off of things if you wanted to? Exactly. We might as well jump. Because down is a direction in which we wanted to go anyhow, to the lower Might city. Might as well jump. <laughs> so maybe, maybe this will come out. See, look, there's another door. Maybe this door will lead out to the lower city, which is where we want to go. Yeah. Okay. So yes, this does not show any signs, any evidence of being involved in... Um, hey, Old okay. Any part of Fangmar, just natural caves. Yeah, we're down oh, in the lower city of... now, right? Yeah, are we out of the instance? No, it still says no. we're in Urgarth. Yeah, we're still in Urgarth. Okay. Bridge. New style bridge, just like before, headed to old style walls. From this one's a... got different... Yeah. This one's got the spikes on the bridge. It's a little different. Yeah, the style is a little bit different. 
Huh. Yeah, I think those high bridges that we're seeing up there are more like where we were. Or, oh, hang on. Where's the dread that, coming from? Oh, it's uh, from that dude? Who, who is he? Uh, champion of Urgoth? The champion of Urgoth? No, the, oh, no, I just got champion of Urgoth. Oh, we you just killed... Uh, ah. Mothrang. Look, Mothrang? White, white factories. Oh, a white what, factory. What is the... What does the carrot over the A sound like? Oh, oh, oh. Um, it should... It should just mean, you know, a, a sort of a longer vowel. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. We've got a phylactery factory. Now, from... If we're down in the lower city that we were seeing from before, which I think we are, based on these bridges I'm seeing way up there, back behind mm -hmm. us. But I think yeah. those are the, some of the ones that we were passing over before, so I think this is the lower city we were seeing. Oh, from yeah. above, it looked like it was all new construction down here, all new stone. But, oh, and look at the moon up there. Where I'm standing, you can see it between the, the two towers over here. That is a bloody Which, moon. What direction is it? Are you pointed? Oh! Where I'm standing. Yeah. That is a poignant looking yeah. astronomical that body. Cool moon. Um, anyway, down here Sorry. among it, we see that the walls are old. Yeah. The walls are old. The white factory is new. A lot of things like those bridges and this ramp are new. Some of the other towers are newer. White factory is new, but the all sort of altar space it's on is not. I don't think we've ever been this much inside the old, the old buildings before. Right. Usually we're just on the outside looking in. This one it looks like we're actually inside one of the upper stories of the building. Oh my. Is this a city? That is a cage fight. Why? Boss fight. Boss fight. No, someone activated it. Yep. Look, how contrived. Hey! Look, I'm really a lore master. I set things on fire. <laughs> Good fire. Nice fire. You can tell I'm with Jess. fire. <laughs> This Iron Beak minion is apparently minding his own business over here, so... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he ain't got no beef with nobody. Right, exactly. So, that's fine. Just a bird. Like, well. Okay. So... Yeah. See, I still want to say that the core of this is still old. Right? Yeah. Got the main... Like, you know, some of this stuff in the courtyard here is probably new, but most of it's old. Mm -hmm. I wonder. I wonder if this means when we get into. I wonder how much of the, the fact that Doom itself looked like it was all new stone, when we were mm -hmm. seeing it from across from the from the scenic overlook. I wonder if that will be that will turn out to have been, an optical illusion of some kind. Could. Well, this is a weird courtyard with all the gates. 
How does anyone get out of here at all? Doesn't seem a very useful court if uh, can't go anywhere. Well, I think it just requires, you know, a key or whatever. Just like everything else around here. Look how tall some of these things are. Like we're 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 looking at buildings that like just height wise are close to like New York City skyscrapers. The moon looks even more amazing from here. Oh nice, yeah. Oh, it's so creepy. I love it. That is that is extremely extremely ominous. Okay. Let's see. And these little skeletons have like little lights inside their cage, so it looks all dramatic. Notice also that the uh, the frames hanging the cages are the new fish-up metal. Oh yeah. They're not just hanging on posts or the underside of bridges or something. Wow, considering how poorly used we've seen some of the attempts to recreate fish hook metal, you wonder that they wanted to use it for something as petty as sort of decoration. Right. The it's whole like use it on that arch that's resting and falling apart. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's not just the wall. It goes all the way up this whole way. The, um, the old architecture. This archway is new. Yep. The archway is new, but the walls on either side are old. And I wonder, you know, it might not even be new. Notice it's got the it's got the the wheels around yep. there. We have seen them use the old gray stone in some places. Maybe the old gray stone isn't always old. It's or isn't always new, rather. Sometimes it did seem like in the courtyard right outside Urgarth to supplement the old walls or when it was used for a different kind of construction like this. There's some Maybe places from the same quarry. Right. There are some places where we're seeing what I definitely think is newer construction. Um, especially in the things that look like faux versions of the old black and white walls. Yeah. Um, with the rusty metal, right? Yeah. That's where it seems to me most conspicuous. But I think almost all of this is old. I think the bridges have been redone because yeah. they probably collapsed. If um, they got to get guys like this across them, they probably need reinforcing every couple hundred years. Right, exactly. Easy to see how that would not go well. Um, oh, right, I forgot there's no useful map, so I can't tell how much more there is to discover. But yeah, I'm pretty convinced that Urugarth itself is pr it, at the least primarily from old Angmar, which means I'm fully expecting to see. I'm now expecting that what we saw from afar, uh -huh. um, that what Sweet we saw from release. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that what we saw from afar was like an illusion in some sense. Where is my? Oh, it's a pale folk. That's why he's saying sweet release. Ah, oh, it's dark. He's saying sweet release? Sweet release when he's dying. Oh, sweet release from, like, the torture of life? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Probably not much fun being them, is it? Right.
trying to set my uh, my pet on attack everybody all the time mode, and it. Mm. Uh, oh, it's got a green waterfall. Doesn't seem to be working. Oh well. This is Whoa! Oh, have we seen a cauldron that looks like this before? That looks kind of new. Huh. That's a fun little trivet. I don't remember. I mean, you'd think we would have seen a cauldron like this, but we don't think yes. we have. No. Especially with that nice four-square frame with the, with the. It's almost like it's got you know rounded corners to childproof it, except then they put all the spikes, so that kind of they undoes almost, the child. They almost look like pauldrons, except they yeah. they're, they're rather obviously made of wood, I think. Yeah, they are. They are. <laughs> Nancy, I was just thinking the same thing. Nancy says, "Don't talk to me about life." <laughs> I was thinking about uh, Marvin as well. Um. It's like the scenic overlook. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing what we can see down there. There's a path. And another yeah. tower. But yeah, even another. over there. No, it's all old stuff. That is fascinating. So now I'm expecting that when we... And, and this is... Oh, no, there is a continued path down this way, right? Um, mm -hmm. I'm now expecting that when we get into Karn Doom proper, we're going to find that it actually is all old. Which really makes more sense. Oh, this is just a kennel? Oh, what's that mask over there for? That's the, a wolf mask. We have seen that before. We're happy? Yeah, like oh. a big 3D version of the the wolf totems. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely have seen that. That's the warg sign. Oh, yeah. yeah it's the... It's the dog kennels. Yeah. Interesting, there are a bunch of places that they're just kind of repurposing, like those caves and this area yeah. that's really nothing like in old Angmar. I mean, maybe they had that whole palace where the raven fire was, but it's like right. either they're not using it or we can't get to it. Or they're using it for other things. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how like the orcs were in that cave network, in these very temporary structures in the cave network. Um, uh huh. And now that you know these wargs are being uh, um, are being held in this just little area with palisades and this little stone, these little stone stable things are the most permanent structures we've seen there. You guys are doing a great job of drawing aggro. Those two wargs just wandered right past me. Didn't pay the least attention to me. Oh, that's a pool. I thought that was just a, like a, a really deep hole for a second. Okay. <laughs> I think it's where the puppies drink. Yeah, yeah. No, I think... Um, um, I have... I feel like I've gotten an answer to my question. Hey guys, sorry. I don't know what's up with you, but. Yeah, you're good. Um, 
Well, it says we got all four bosses for here, so. And did we? Yeah, see, you can see down on this level too. Oh yeah, it's all old stuff. All old stuff, except that one tower on the corner there, which I wonder, mm -hmm. I, you know, I think that might be, perhaps that is in fact old too, because the metal doesn't look like the brown rusty metal. Yeah. So even though it's the different kind of stone, I bet you that yeah. would have the uh, wagon wheels on it if we went to look. It does make me wonder if like there was an old palace and a new palace though. I wonder. Well, we'll see. We'll see yeah. when we compare with Karn Doom. Well, I shouldn't keep people too late because it's. I started super late. Yeah, and I think we've seen everything in Uruguay. I think we have. I think we're certainly close enough to be able if to. If we're wrong, but leave us a note. So. Right. <laughs> we'll make sure to check it out. I, I do like the Drake's flying randomly overhead. That's kind of fun. Okay. All right. <laughs> awesome. So we will return up to Karn Doom next time. We'll. 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 I guess start from Tarman Sosa again and uh -huh. uh, go across and then take a right at Urgarth instead of going in um, and then just sort of continue our explorations to see how that unfolds. But I'm now expecting we're going to see more st old stone ar architecture than it looked like from across the way. <laughs> Sounds good. That's what I think. All right. Awesome. Thank you guys. Thanks everybody for joining. Thanks everybody who is so industriously killing things so I didn't have to fight anything and could just look around. <laughs> Do the really important thing, which is examining the architecture and trying to decide what's going on here. Um, but uh, awesome. Thanks everybody for joining us and we'll see you guys next week. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.